Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz vibraphonist Jay Hogard. He was born in Washington, D.C. and grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. The age of 15, he began playing the vibraphone after he had a dream about it. His latest album is in a long string of quality jazz LPs and its 2016's Harlem hieroglyphs and it's a great listen his journey into music really took off when he majored at the renowned world music program at wesleyan university and for the last 20 years he's been a full professor of music at his alma mater over the years he's toured europe and the world played carnegie hall traveled to tanzania and well beyond with his music he's collaborated with the masters lionel hampton milt jackson tito puente and the great bobby hutcherson and he still has plenty to go in his jazz legacy. So please get to know Jay and dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking some time out to speak with me. It's an honor to get to know you and to introduce you to the neon jazz world. Well, Joe, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I look forward to communicating with your listeners, and I know that you're uh, uh, completely about the music, so that's a great thing. Right on. So I'm going to start off here and ask you, you know, in your own words, give me a snapshot of activity that's going on in your world. My latest album, which came out uh, in the summer, is called Harlem Hieroglyphs, and it features uh, myself on the vibraphone and Gary Bartz on the alto saxophone and James Weidman on piano and Belden Bullock on bass and Yaron Israel on drums, and also Nat Adderley Jr. on piano and organ. I did quite a few things in the summer uh, concerning that record, and uh, then I teach at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, where I've been for 26 years, and uh, I direct the jazz orchestra and teach theory and a few things. So the, uh, between that during the semester and then and then uh, you know performing with my ensemble, usually either quartet or quintet, although sometimes I add percussion and uh, other instruments. But my core ensemble is, is a quartet uh, uh, with the Belden Bullock on bass and, and James Weidman on piano. And I've been using my good friend and colleague here at Wesleyan, Faron Arclough, on the drums. And Gary Bartz has made uh, some of my performances. And then Sometimes I use other saxophones, but right, uh, Dwight Andrews, I was just down in Atlanta with my old friend Dwight Andrews, and uh, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm crossing, trying to intersect and cross all those kind of uh, uh, different musical worlds of of the performance, of the recording and composing, and uh, and then the the teaching college. So before we go into your childhood with the Harlem Hieroglyphs, that's a power lineup. That had to be a fun album to make. Yeah, I've I've known all of these music. Well, the quartet, the core quartet, either Yaron Israel or Veron Akloff on the drums and those other two gentlemen uh, have been the core rhythm section that I've been working with for more than 20 years now, almost 20 more than 20 years, 22, 23 years. So we have a, a deep bond. And then on this record, Gary Bartz and I have been friends and colleagues for many years. This is the first time we had the opportunity to record together. And uh, so I wrote the music. The music originally was uh, from a uh, dance 
that's theater collaboration for which I wrote the music. And so some of the tempos and some of the musical grooves and musical uh, portraits are uh, were related to uh, the dance project that I did with a uh, with my colleagues here at Wesley, Nicole Stanton, who's a choreographer, and Lois Brown, who is a, a writer, and uh, that had that was a big inspiration. We did uh, a big performance here, and you know it's something that maybe we'll have a life separate from uh, what we did here at Wesley, and uh, but certainly the music has had its own life, and so I did a lot of performances with that without the dance and without the dialogue and so forth. And you know, that I try to think uh, that way at this point in terms of composition. I'm thinking about context and and painting and from the from the Ellington template of of doing doing tonal portraits. And uh so yes, I'm trying to think thematically as well as conceptually in my compositions and my sequences are that of a of a full performance that that you know could be at any point could be those other mediums could be inserted right on so let me ask you this tell me how a kid that was born in Washington DC raised in Mount Vernon New York grows up to become so big in the world of jazz how did this happen you know the music is organically part of of uh, I grew up in the church in the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church so music and both of my parents were very musically inclined my mother was from Pittsburgh and so uh, she went to high school with Errol Garner and my father was a uh, minister and uh, he retired as a bishop in the church but he was also a very gifted musician and uh organist and pianist and uh so i had a and he took me to see duke ellington's my brother and me to see duke ellington's sacred sec the the premiere of the second sacred concert in 1965 at our church in harlem and in fact that church is the is one of the images in the collage on uh, the album cover of Harlem Hieroglyphs, and it was in that sanctuary that I first saw Duke Ellington's full uh, ensemble, along with uh, choirs and then soloists and tap dancers. And that was I was 11 or 12 then, and that had a big impact, pretty much lifelong impact on me being motivated to being in music and following the music path and trying to manifest uh, in, uh, sonic consciousness uh, in both uh, music of music that is positive, spiritual, happy, and uplifting, and of cultural and personal significance. That's what I've been kind of really geared toward. And the music called jazz is a music that very much incorporates all, all of the artists, one way or another, incorporate those more lofty ideals. We don't normally just function on the level of uh, trying to be the most popular of the minute or the most commercial of the minute. I think, although there are many musicians and artists and, and composers who are in the more popular uh, styles that also have the, the same kind of priorities. So I'm not about being a jazz not or jazz snob. I'm just saying that that style of music has been 
the kind that has drawn me uh, the most, uh, you know, has the most ability to accommodate how I hear things. So at 15, you have a dream that you're playing the the vibraphone. You you rent a set. How did this come about? Why why did you dream about it? Why was this destiny picked for you? I don't know. I mean, if I knew that, then I'd then I'd be, you know, I could probably have a psychic, I you know, psychic TV show or something. You know, I could. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, yes, I did have a dream when I was 15 that I was playing the vibraphone, and I got up the next day and and asked my father. I knew there was a place where we could rent a set, and in fact, I later, uh, my dad later bought that set for me. But he first, when we rented it, it was ten dollars a month in 1970, and that was, you know, a significant uh, financial. You know, expense or significant commitment, and but I, as soon as the first time I played it, knew that oh, this is what I'm going to be connected to, and it connected me to uh, my studies of uh, African marimbas and and mallet instruments around the world and uh, other percussion instruments around the world. And then when I went to college, I I teach at the college that I went to as as a student as an undergrad. And uh, we have a world music program, or world music is one of the concepts that we have of how we approach uh, the study of music. And there were many opportunities to uh, be connected to percussion musics. And and through that, uh, I was able to connect to the tuning of the vibraphone is tuned the same way a piano is tuned, but also to hear other rhythmic and and melodic possibilities in other traditions. And pretty much my whole career, the last 40 years, has been uh, built around that. So in the beginnings, what albums were you listening to that really kind of got your jazz gears moving? Well, you know, I liked, like I said, the Duke Ellington. When when my dad said he was going to take us to see Duke Ellington, I was 11 or 12, as I said, and I was like, who is that? I mean, I, I vaguely had heard the name of some old guy, and I, that didn't really interest me. And then when I got there and saw it, it was it was transforming. And by the time uh, that was when I was twelve, by the time I was fifteen, when I had that dream, you know, I started listening to jazz. And as I said, my mother used to talk about uh, that she went to high school with Errol Garner, and she could play songs that I didn't understand till I was grown and a professional that she was playing in the same kind of style as Errol Garner and so that and then I used to see Lionel Hampton on television and and it never really connected until I started playing the vibraphone that oh this is the same instrument that he plays and I also became really interested in uh, Milt Jackson and the modern jazz quartet. I don't remember which I knew first. Did I know the MJQ before I knew Milt Jackson or vice versa? I can't tell you that, but I did go sometime after I started playing. Uh, they played at Carnegie Hall, and we had the opportunity to go see them. And again, that was a transforming experience somewhere in 1971 or 72, somewhere in that zone. So Milt Jackson and then Bobby Hutchison, Roy Ayers, Cal Jader. I grew up uh, near the Bronx, so I very much had a Bronx kind of 
inspiration, which were what uh, in terms of Latin Latin music, uh, African Cuban musics, particularly artists like Mongo Santa Maria and Ray Barreto and a group called uh, uh, Pucho and his Latin Soul Brothers and and Joe Cuba, both both of which and all of which had some connection, and and of course Tito Puente, all who had connections to the vibraphone and uh, one way or another. The vibraphone was a part of their uh, musical palette, and so all those things. I once I was drawn to the vibraphone. I was mostly drawn to that. I listened to John Coltrane and and Miles Davis and many others, Sonny Stitt, uh, uh, Freddie Hubbard, McCoy Tyner. But but my early influences were mostly those vibraphones. So was it always going to be music for you when you realized that the vibes were your instrument at 15, or did you have other dreams of what was going to happen for your life? Well, I wanted to play in the NBA, but at at 5'7", I was, oh, I guess in in uh, high school, high school I was about 5'5", five, five, so I didn't have these, like these guys now that have these vertical leaps of, that, are, that there's a guy that plays on the, um, on one of the teams, uh, on one of them, I can't remember who's who's five six who can jump like who can dunk. I never had that uh, physical ability, so uh, that was never going to be the case. And I played baseball, but I wasn't going to play for the Yankees, and uh, I was too small to play football. So at at one point, I kind of mostly got motivated uh, by music because. Uh, it seemed to have a lot of fulfillment. You know, I've always enjoyed writing. I said the other day that I was interested in writing for Mad Magazine, but that never uh, <laughs> that never happened. But but I always have kind of a Mad Magazine kind of sense of humor. Right on. So let me ask you this. Your first go-around with Wesleyan University in the World Music Program, you go, you play in Europe in a Carnegie Hall during your freshman year. Your junior year, you go to Tanzania and East Africa. What what was that educational experience like for you? What did you learn about music and 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 being alive? Well, yeah, that that's kind of what I was saying. The World Music Program uh, going well. I I performed with a, a a fellow who was teaching here at Westland, whose name was Clifford Thornton, who passed, but he was a trumpet player, and I went to Europe with him when I was a freshman in college, and we played at Carnegie Hall and. Played the Lofts in New York, Rashid Ali's place, Ali's Alley, and Sam Rivers' place, who also was one of my early teachers here at Westland. We, his place was called Studio Rivby in the Loft era. So I had, uh, you know, those playing experiences. And then uh, it was my second year, after my second year, that I, you know, applied to this program where we could, you could travel. So I went to to East Africa and you know I had been fortunate to travel a few places earlier in my life but that was the first time I went so far uh, uh, by myself and while well, I was with a group of students but we were not directly affiliated with a university so anyway I got to really experience that this is a big planet earth this big this planet earth is big and there are a lot of people on it and we are not limited to to seeing things just how we see them on our block or in our neighborhood or in our city or in our state. And it's a big picture. And music is one of the great common links of people who have different 
language and different experience, but music cuts through all that stuff. And so that was one of the big things that I learned early on and was very uh, fortunate and blessed to have uh, been exposed to directly. And then I've tried to bring that into my uh, work uh, uh, through all these years. So you graduate in 76 from Wesleyan. You go to New York City in 77. That had to be a just full of action in New York at that point. What was those early years like for you? Uh, thanks for asking. As I said, uh, those lofts, I, I went to New York. At, I taught high school for a year and then moved to New York just in order to make gigs. And there was there was a an area that's now called Soho, which is a very uh, upscale uh, area of Manhattan. Now that used to be literally abandoned factory buildings and looked like it was kind of a bombed out neighborhood and in that neighborhood uh, was where many of the uh, artists of the 60s uh, who kind of came to maturity in the 60s had lofts and so this whole business there's a lot of people who are interested in loft in the loft scene now it was and Ornette Coleman had a place as I said Sam Rivers uh, Rashid Ali and Warren Smith had a place that his was a little further up but there were a number of lofts and where musicians controlled the interaction with the music. And so it was not much of a business model. And usually playing in those places, you know, you didn't play in them because you were trying to make money. You played in them because you could go express whatever kind of creativity you had. And then at the same time, you know, the 70s, late 70s was a disco era. And I was always interested in, because I grew up in New York, I was interested in being a studio musician also to play on jingles and play on commercials and play on recording. So I did, I, and I had friends who who uh, were in uh, pop and rock and roll and, and soul and, and the disco uh, era. So I played on a, on a few, uh, not no major hits, but I played on a number of recordings that were, uh, released during that time period of that kind of music. So I, I kind of covered a wide range between the so-called avant-garde in the lost scene and then the commercial studio musician scene. And 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 in between, uh, uh, trying to learn how to play uh, the more traditional jazz in terms of uh, the harmonic uh the harmonic structures uh, associated with the the innovations of the 40s and 50s of of people like Thelonious Monk and Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Coltrane and and others. So I tried. That was mostly my spectrum. I didn't do too many um, straight or orchestral gigs, sym symphonic orchestral gigs, and I didn't really do any Broadway shows. I wasn't. That I did one, but I wasn't really interested in that at that time. And full circle, this is where I'm kind of interested in writing uh, some shows for Broadway or for that type circumstance, but using uh, being based in jazz music as opposed to being based in what is more right now the standard palette of, of Broadway musicals. Let me ask you this. The one thing that's interesting is that you've, you've had so many collaborations over the years. You've, you've collaborated with the masters like Lionel Hampton, Milt Jackson, uh, Bobby Hutcherson. 
what do you learn from your collaborations with with these musicians? What have how, how have you grown from those experiences? Well, especially those guys were all vibraphonists, and you know, I I I was very very blessed to have had a relationship, kind of a student teacher mentor relationship with them. They were they were the mentors and the teachers, and I was the student, and I tried to be respectful of that relationship, and always felt when I was around them, I was under the master's feet, so to speak. So we talked about not only things of technical issues of the vibraphone, but also just about music in general and many, many kinds of point, points of view of, of 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 life as a musician. Also, uh, Kenny Burrell, I had the opportunity to play with his band for several years, and he was a, a very big influence on me, and uh, as I said, Tito Puente. But most of the, the longer relationships I had, uh with with those who I considered more the mentor teacher uh kind of role were those with uh, with other vibraphonists. And when I first came to New York I played with the people who I considered my peers and my good friends, but they were more mature as band leaders than I was, such as James Newton, Anthony Davis, Chico Freeman as I said, Dwight Andrews, and a number of other people, a trumpet player named Ahmed Abdullah, who's in charge of a venue uh, where I'm playing in Brooklyn in December, Sister's Place, and many others. But those were some of the, uh, a bassist named Vishnu Wood, uh, who used to play with Randy Weston. And so I had I had a lot of opportunities to have kind of that longer extended apprentice relationship with both my contemporaries and then those who were one or two generations ahead of me. Let me ask you this about jazz. You've been around for a long, long time, over 40 years as a performer. What kind of changes from the beginnings of you getting into jazz to today have you seen? Is jazz healthier? What kind of organism are we dealing with with jazz these days? Well, the music is very alive and thriving. It's it's tough because Everything has shifted. I mean, when I when I got out of college and first moved to New York, we still were focused on records. I mean, literally LPs, um, long playing records, vinyl. And so, one thing that I that I do in 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 my classes, and I did this semester, I make the eighteen year olds go to the music library and only take out records to listen to. Uh, don't tell me that you listen to something from that you got it online or even from a CD, but that you uh, learned about it from records because there's still a lot of records in our library. And often they come back and say, um, wow, you know, that that was the first time I ever held a record, and it was, like, totally cool because I never did that before. And I said, well, that was the whole 20th century, how, how uh, you know, sonic information was transmitted. So... So and the reason I say that is that in the in in this the um digital streaming era there's there's a whole bunch of information that you can acquire at right at your fingertips. I call the cell phones wisdom boxes. You know, it's like cuz I try to imagine if someone was a you know like in, from the 15th century if they saw someone holding this box that can make all these sounds and they push a button and it does stuff or it, you know, has images in it, how, you know, that would kind of freak someone out who didn't even know what electricity was, right? But yeah. 
But the idea being that that the younger people take that as a given. They don't know someone who's under 18 does not know the world before cell phones or before PCs, um, personal computers. Well, the point is this kind of music developed, you know, before that, and it didn't. Whatever who's playing, you know, right in front of you in 2016. There's a whole long history of tradition that that uh, informs what they do and how they got there. And and in one sense, the um, cell phone type, the digital consciousness kind of cuts that out because the digital consciousness, you push the button and everything is right there. So there's way more information, but oftentimes it, there's no context. So someone can play something from 1926 or, or 2015. All you do is hit the button and it still comes out. So it's pretty much... Uh, well, it's the same thing. Well, no, there's a hundred years in between or ninety years in between that that informed all that. So that's on the one level. Then on another level, there's so many gifted and talented young musicians who've come through school programs, and some of whom I've uh, trained, and others who go who've gone through uh, very strong programs in the many schools of music uh, music that that teach this kind of music, they're very well prepared and they're less they're even less gigs because you know, how many events, social events do you go to where they play recorded music? You know, because it's just way easier and way cheaper than having a band. Whereas when when this music gestated in the in, you know, early twentieth century, the first half of the twentieth century, they didn't even the recordings were were not something that you could bring to a social event. So there would always be musicians there. And that's one of the big differences, that that music, it, it's only certain special events now where you go to a concert as opposed to something where it's where it's alive and around everybody all the time. So that that's kind of a, a, a difference. And I was at the end of that older era and the beginning of this new era. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the one thing that's interesting, too, is that your life has kind of gone full circle. You were a student at Wesleyan, and now you're a professor. You've been there for several decades. What is it like to be – what is your philosophy? What, Based on being a student there and then now being a professor, what do you what did you want to do with your experience with the students? Well, I just try to be as honest as I can about the music and, and also being clear – that the music did not develop in what I call the the studio that I teach in. It didn't it didn't develop in a laboratory like that. This music developed in in society, in American society, in the complexities of of the African American experience and the European American experience and the the African diaspora and all of the above. Uh, when you hear Louis Armstrong or when you hear King Oliver or when you hear Fletcher Henderson or Duke Ellington or whomever, uh, uh, Tricky Sam, uh, Nanton or, or Bubba Miley in, in the 1920s or Charlie Parker or Coltrane or, or Lionel Hampton or Tito Puente or, or Max Roach or Mill Jackson or any of these people, uh, you're hearing uh, an awful lot of information that that they acquired and then they are embodying as transcendent artists. So we have to look at each of those great when we hear their recordings, we have to think of them as as great oral traditions 
who are speaking epic poetry and speaking uh, uh, elucidating high consciousness through their sound. So that's what I try to inspire in all my students to to look at the music, not just not just oh I like it or I don't like it or I like the way they bang on that in that part or or I could I, I it made my feet move. Well, all that stuff is good, but I also want to look at the multiple layers beyond that. You know, you've had the chance to play with legends. You've seen legends perform. But let me ask you this. If you could go back in time and witness a jazz artist live, who would you go see and where would you go see him? A jazz artist. Okay. Well, I never got a chance to see uh, John Coltrane, and I would have I would have liked to have been uh, at some of the many live recordings he did. Uh, yeah, that would have been nice that, that I know those recordings to to actually see what they what the environment was like uh, when they made them. Eric Dolphy, uh, a, a lot of people. I was very fortunate though that I grew up in the era where most of the people that were the big inspirations for me, I did have a chance to uh, connect uh, connect with. I never saw Fletcher Henderson. I never saw. King Oliver, for instance, and you know, and then uh, there are others. But but in general, I I was I was very blessed, as you said before, to have a personal relationship with many of my musical uh, mentors and role models. So, as somebody that's dedicated their lives to music, you've made such good music. You're an educator. You clearly love jazz. But in your own words, why do you love jazz? Why do I love jazz? Because it's positive, spiritual, uplifting music of the highest order. What's one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you about your music? Well, when people say that they that it you know moved them in some kind of way or another, I always feel gratified. You know, I've had I've been around the track long enough now that people will tell me they've been listening to me for a long time, and they'll say, "Mr. Hogarth," and then I have to turn around because I think they're talking to you know my dad or somebody else and uh, you know I've been listening to you for X amount of time and I literally I, I say oh yeah well uh, thanks but I ain't dead yet you know or I remember one time I told Mill Jackson when I first maybe the second time I met Mill Jackson I said you know I listen to Bags and Train every day the, the recording Bags and Train I used to listen to it every day and he looked at me like bags and train. What is? Oh, that's that record I made with Coltrane. You mean that? Uh, this was around nineteen, late seventies, maybe seventy nine. So, so he literally had to think about. Oh yeah, I made that record twenty years ago. I vaguely remember that. And I thought that was the oddest thing because I, you know, like I said, I listened. To, I knew every note on it backwards and forwards. And then, and now I'm. I've been around the track long enough to. People will come up to me and say, "Oh, I, you know, bought such and such a record, or I saw you performing in, in, in 1980 in such and such place." And I have to think about it. Oh, yeah, okay, I was there. I'm still alive, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you've mentioned this several times. I know you're far from being done. You've been around the track quite a bit, but when you sit back in the easy chair, close your eyes, and think about this great life you've lived in jazz. What do you want the kids of the future that peel back the pages of jazz to know about you? How do you want to be remembered for your contributions? Well, like Ellington said, when when he didn't get the uh, the Pulitzer in uh, or 
I think it was a Pulitzer, and he was like 72. And he said, well, it wasn't meant for him to get it yet because he's still too young. He had he had too many other things he had to do first before he could be judged. That's how I feel. I, I feel like, um, you know, I've been very blessed to have documented my work. I want to keep... Uh, I want to keep composing and performing. I, I, most of my writing is my composing is tied with the vibraphone and or with different settings with the vibraphone. And but I'm now in a phase where I want to, uh, you know, write more for large ensembles and write for uh, settings such as for dance and for theater. So you know, I wouldn't mind writing something like West Side Story or something like that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I wrote that. And, you know, I, I haven't done that yet. And so that is one of the ambitions. But uh, the 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 point being that the sound of the vibraphone, if my compositions are associated with the vibraphone, I'm very cool with that, you know, because I say all the time, well, Bobby Hutchison just recently passed, and Bobby Hutchison is not only – a great it's a given that he was a great great innovator on the vibraphone but he's also a great composer and conceptualist uh, in areas wider than just uh with that instrument in the same manner that that the some of the pianists are you know great affect other than just on the instrument or or people on other you know trumpet or whatever trombone so you know i i would like to have some some affect on other than just my instrument, but I can live with that. I'm totally cool with if people, you know, associate me with the vibraphone. And not only am I cool with it, it's a blessing and an honor because I was very, to go full circle when you said about that dream, I was very blessed to uh, have been given the opportunity to follow through in a, in a relationship with that instrument. When I was 15, I wouldn't have expected I did... Uh, you know, a few of the things that I've done, and just because by banging on that thing, people still come up and say, oh, yeah, I really like the way you bang on that thing. And do you have to practice? Is it is it something that, that uh, you know, requires any work? Or or uh, people, I say, uh, people say, what do you play? I say, the vibraphone. Vibraphone, what's that? Well, you know who Lionel Hampton is? No, who is that? Well, do you know what a xylophone is? Oh, you mean that thing with the colors on it? Uh yeah, I had one of those when I was a kid. You get you you're a professional and play that, <laughs> you know. So I, I'm I'm cool with the idea of more people knowing what a vibraphone is. Everyone knows what a guitar is more more or less. Most people know what a trumpet is. Most people know what drums are. But once you get to and what about the vibraphone? What the heck is that? <laughs> so yeah. if my name is associated with that, you know I'm honored. Gary Burton, the great Gary Burton, was also a very big influence on me uh, uh, from the beginning and, and many others. Beautiful. Jay, I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. I appreciate you giving me some of your time today, and, and most certainly for all the music. It's beautiful. Oh, well, Joe, it's my honor. I appreciate I appreciate your insight, too. You you, you didn't ask me the, the usual run-of-the-mill questions, so I much appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Jay for his time and all of that music. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.